Mix Company, bringing the siloed and uncomfortable conversation we have with our friends to the forefront so everyone can participate in the conversation. We say all the things you never would in Mix Company. Welcome to Mix Company. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. So if you have not heard of us, we are Mix Company Podcast. Um, we have been doing this for about four years now. Yes. All right. So basically, here's the premise. A couple of folks working in advertising, experiencing life in advertising from the bottom up. We know what it's like for the policies to apply to you, but not to the other people who are in leadership. And quite frankly, it can be toxic. Quite frankly, it can be uh, stressful. Traumatic. Anxiety-inducing. And we needed a way to kind of um, just, I don't know. Yeah, we, 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 we started. We needed a way to kind of like not always yeah. be at the bar drinking our problems away. So essentially what ended up happening is we said, rather than putting all our, our money into the bar, let's kind of take our troubles to the podcast. And that's what we've been sharing for the last four seasons. Our perspective of diversity and inclusion in the advertising industry from the perspective of the bottom up. So. Yeah, I think also to piggyback off of that, we, when we, ooh, what was that? Uh, when we started, uh, what we called it was solution fencing. So we were actually getting a lot of shit off of our chest that was happening in the office and there was really no safe space or outlets within the office for us to say the things that needed to be said. And so we chose the podcast to be our you to do that. Absolutely. How many of you guys actually have um, a group chat that you guys kind of utilize from day to day through throughout the work day? Please don't lie. <laughs> right. So we kind of consider ourselves a group chat kind of in real life and also on your audio. So if you haven't subscribed or you've never heard us and this is your first time, please take yourselves to either SoundCloud, iTunes, uh, Spotify, Spotify, Stitcher, Stitcher Google, Google Play. Play, right, and subscribe, um, because that also helps us with our listenership. So, for those of you that are here, this is how this is going to work today. We do really well when we have audience slash listeners slash co-host participation. So if there's anything that really strikes you, by all means, use this as an opportunity to feel like church. By all means, you can shout something out at me. By all means, you can wave your hands. You can start to, to, to scream. I don't know. Just do something to let us know that you're alive because that gives us energy, gives you energy, and make this conversation even better. Um, thank you. Like that. I'll take anybody else that can give me that. Two. Okay, but we're getting better. All right, that's what I'm saying. Okay, thank you. So before we even get started, we want to say a special thank you to the good folks here at Group M, the good folks at The Collective, and of course WPP for having an amazing Black History Month week, month experience, etc. It means a lot to us that there are more than just people who identify with African and African American culture here today. These conversations aren't just to be had around people um, of color. It's for all of us so that we're able to create a better experience in the workplace. 
And one of the things that we know um, that you all here at Group M are doing is pushing forward your mantra, which is provocation with a purpose. And if you know anything about me, I say provocative things all the time. So let's use this as a moment to make sure that we're being as open as we can, as honest as we can. I'm not gonna say something to you out loud that I probably wouldn't say to you in person, but if I needed to, I'll let you know and we can talk later. Does that work for everybody? I, I, I'm, I mean, I know I'm not famous, but like, I'd like to hear more. Does that work for everybody? Okay, thank you so much. So we can go ahead and get into this. So I know you guys had submitted some questions ahead of time. So what we're gonna do is start to go through some of those. Um, and I might even open it up to a few of you if you have a better response than we do. So I think that might actually make this a little bit more engaging. And then we'll wait until uh, the end of the session to kind of open it up for questions. So let's go ahead and kick off soon. First thing people want to know about is being authentic in the workplace. Some people are going to smile, other people are going to cringe. Shout out to all of you wearing dreads and Jordans. Yes. That would be me. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so one person asked, how would you suggest newly hired people of color in advertising go about adapting to office culture without compromising their own culture? Well, that's hard. I mean, for me, this makes me take a deep breath and deep sigh in because um, I feel like if you're coming into a culture that is um, meant to be inclusive, then you shouldn't have to adapt. The culture that you're coming into should have to uh, be open for you to come in however you are. Um, but if you find yourself in a situation where uh, your bills need to be paid and you're picking okay. up any job that you can get, I think it's adapting for me, and I'll just use my own personal experiences, is finding your allies within the office, right? So uh, Kai and I used to work together uh, a long time ago. God bless you for still being my yes. friend. <laughs> and she was one of the people, and it, it wasn't a very inclusive office. It was um, awful. It was, it was it trash. It was bad. garbage. It was garbage. We could say that. It was garbage. Um, and she became the person who uh, allowed me to, she was one of the people who allowed me to be myself within the office. And because I had that, I was able to get things done and to advance within that space. Um, so I would say for me, that would probably be the first thing to do is to find somebody, there's gonna be at least one, um, you know, in some of these agencies, there is a lack of diversity, but however you find that person, it could be a white person, it could be um, somebody who you don't necessarily identify with, but find that person so that you don't necessarily feel like you have to adapt to fit into that situation. Um, I would agree with all of those things. I also want to put out there that the reality is anytime that you have to conform to another situation, you automatically are um, kind of uh, compromising the integrity of your own authenticity. So I think that the first thing that one should consider, and quite frankly, this isn't necessarily for more junior people. This is as you move into your uh, mid-level career, um, you have to kind of choose. Are you going to compromise your integrity or is your focus to adapt? I don't think that that means that you can't, um, I don't think that that means that you can't make friends. I don't think that means that you can't coexist. I don't think that means that you become a, sh a shitty coworker. I think what it means is your prioritization of what's important to you. 
And if your integrity and your own authenticity is important to you, then you have to keep your values in line. And those values aren't necessarily tied to how you dress. It's not necessarily always tied to how you look or what you listen to on the train ride. Shout out to my desk trappers that be pushing GZ at your desk while you're typing your spreadsheets. Um, it does mean, though, that you make sure that when you say something, it is the most authentic and real interpretation of what you're trying to communicate. For example, somebody comes to you and they say, hey, we're having fried chicken for lunch today, and you know damn well you don't like fried foods. Don't say yes just because the team wants you to go eat fried chicken. Hey, y'all, not today. Or, yeah, I'll come, but I'm not eating with you. And I think that's a very high-level way to put it. Um, I think another thing is maybe sometimes you've been in an office meeting. Um, office meeting, usually meetings are in the office, whatever. You've been in a meeting, and somebody says something crazy like, ooh, that's ghetto. And you know damn well that person has never, one, been to the ghetto, and two, has probably has no idea how offensive that can be. In that moment, in your most friendly coworker way, you can pull them to the side and say, hey, that makes me uncomfortable when you say that. I'd really like to work on a better way to identify things when they may not be up to par. And that does one of two things, right? You're keeping your integrity high because you know that that's not okay and you sound real trash for saying that. And two, it also allows you to somehow uh, acclimate to your culture without being rude, as some people will say. Now, if you're me, sometimes you get rude. But the point is to not do that all the time because bills have to be paid. Yeah, I think one of the things you're going to have to do regardless of whatever level you are, however you identify, is come up with strategies to check people. Um, you're going to have to do it throughout your life, whether it's at work or, or in your personal life, you're going to have to check people. And um, any spaces that are very uh, relationship-oriented, you want to figure out ways, have those strategies on deck so that when somebody says something like, that's so ghetto, or anything else that's offensive, that you're coming from a place of strategy instead of emotion. Absolutely. All right, I'm going to go ahead and move on to the next. Does anyone agree with that? Does anyone disagree with that? Thank you for the snaps. Yes, my ancestors are bubbling. Thank you all. All right, um, I'll go on to the next question. How to manage gaslighting and unconscious bias? Somebody is out here feeling really tired, um, more often than not, because they have to code switch five out of the seven days a week. Welcome to my life of Kai. Um, how many people here feel like they have to either cover something about themselves or that they're constantly in a state of code switching? Who here does not know what it means to code switch? Okay, this is great. I expected there to be more people, but long story short, code switching, and I really wish that I had the clip from uh, BuzzFeed, because there's, there's this amazing clip of a young woman um, who's walking into work, and she sees uh, a coworker who is Latin, and she starts to speak to that coworker in Spanish. With um, uh, she starts to speak to that coworker in Spanish. Next, she sees a black coworker, and they start to engage in a way that is um, very authentic to African American culture. 
Next, she sees a white coworker and is very polite. Good morning, how are you? So good to see you. Oh yes, the coffee is hot today. And she moves on and there's another coworker and they're speaking Spanish and they're cool. And so it's a very informal type of Spanish that they're speaking. That is a great uh, example on BuzzFeed of code switching. It is the intentional way of communicating with people um, where you have to change, whether it's your tone, your actions, your inflections, your sound, uh, your enunciation, your the things that you say in that conversation to make other people comfortable with how they interact with you. It's a very, very complex style of communicating. In my opinion, that's a whole other language. So I speak about seven languages in addition to Spanish and any broken other thing that exists, right? Um, it is tiring, it is very exhausting. And it is very exhausting because sometimes when you don't code switch, even as a woman, when you speak to a man, if you find yourself talking about, you know, Sunday night football and you know damn well you didn't watch the game today, you may be code switching. And it becomes taxing because it's not the most authentic representation of you um, to think about what is gonna make this person comfortable and how are they gonna respond to me. Um, here's my thought on it. I think there is a way to lessen the amount of code switching that you have to do. Is anybody else here tired of code switching? Okay, all right, just a few of you. Everybody else is comfortable with it, totally fine. Um, I think there is a way to get around that and I think it is about the relationships that you build in the workplace. The stronger relationships that you build, people start to understand who you are and become very comfortable with how you express yourself. The reality is if you want to say, F it, I'm not code switching, you may get backlash and I'm, I'm, I'm with it. Like, don't do that if that's not what you want to do, but you're not always going to get the results and the response you want. When you do build relationships where people are actually here to invest in who you are as a professional and as a person um, and as a, as a human being, they will let you be the realest you that you can be while also giving you space to re, what's the word I'm looking for? To, to kind of reiterate what it is you're trying to say if they don't understand. So for women, sometimes it's our tone. So if you've ever been told that you're sassy or that um, you, you know, I'm not quite sure when you said that one thing, your, your voice cracked a little, that is a level of code switching that people don't understand, that just because I shake my neck doesn't mean I'm mad at you. I might actually just be really excited and passionate about the conversation we're having. But that becomes something that you can only get to, from my experience, um, as you build relationships. Yeah, I feel like this question and the first question play hand in hand. Um, for me, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, uh, just being raised by first, being a first generation American, being raised by Nigerian dad, Jamaican mother, um, respectability. Yeah. Yeah. You all right? <laughs> Respectability politics um, was was how we were basically raised. And so when I started my career in 2005, uh, I had a ball head. I would make sure I came to work in suits every single day. Um, I had on shoes. I would never wear sneakers to work. And I realized that that one wasn't me, um, but it backfired because that that person who was showing up to work uh, could only be there certain times. When shit really hits the fan, 
the person who's from Bedside Brooklyn um, is going to show up, and that's there's a misalignment right there. So yeah, what I schedule appointment. <laughs> so what I realized was that it was best for me to actually show up to that interview as myself, so that they knew exactly who they were going to get when things were rough or when things were good, because it's extremely taxing when you have to basically change your entire being to be in a space where you're one of the only few there. And I think that question mentioned the gaslighting, and I feel like one of the things that, that happened, and that happened to me early in my career, where you would actually realize that things were wrong, and mostly white people would say, well, no, you're, you're making it up, you're imagining it, they're not treating you differently. And what I real, what my strategy became was to ask questions, right? So if you're realizing that there are disparities between how you're being treated and how somebody who is not like you is being treated, then what I would do is basically ask questions. So if um, at one job that I had, uh, they basically said that I was being antisocial, and I was like, well, I need you to articulate what that is. And they were like, well, you come into work, and you put your headphones on, and you don't you don't speak to anybody after, you know, once the day gets started. And I said, well, Jack gets to do the same thing. So what's the difference between Jack and myself? Um, Jack is white, and I'm black. So now we actually need to answer for what, what that is. And a lot of times it is implicit bias. They don't realize that they're doing it. But in order to get to a place of some resolve, of some solution, you actually need to, I think the best strategy is to ask questions so that you're not um, throwing daggers, um, because that's how you get to a place where you can have a real meaningful conversation and um, not just make change for you, but make change for somebody else. I also think that goes both ways. Oh, oh thank you. <laughs> you can clap more. <laughs> I also think that goes both ways. So I think I see a, quite a few leaders in the room that actually manage teams here. So that question, that asking a question asking, I was about to get a real bad question asking, right? That question asking and, and giving people and, and gaining more clarity around why people are doing the things that they're doing and why they are responding to you in a way uh, that they are is super important in building relationships, not just junior level to management, but also management to the people that you are, quite frankly, mentoring, because that is a part of the job. If you, by any chance, find yourself in a situation where you're not quite sure why you're not gelling with the person that you're managing, it is okay to take time during one of your statuses to say, this is how I'm feeling. I may be internalizing this the wrong way. Can we have a discussion about how to better work together? And I think most of the managers and uh, uh, supervisors and teamwork teammates that I've worked with that um, have taken the time to understand why instead of what are you doing? What are you doing coming in at a certain time? What are you doing with your headphones on? Well, why do you work like that? Um, it's allowed us to kind of come and come to come to Jesus, if you will, and establish an understanding both sides. So, because it feels like gaslighting when you say, "Oh, I'm not attacking you," and we'll use the headphones thing because I know a lot of people go through that. Well, you're being antisocial. When I'm not being antisocial, you're attacking me. Well, I'm not attacking you. It just feels that way. I can. I think it's fair to say that a lot of what we deal with in the workplace is just an internalized feeling 
based on our perception of the environment. And what's important is that if both sides recognize that we're perceiving things in a different way, then it is on the shoulders of both sides, management and, and uh, employee, to kind of sit there and have a conversation. If you want to get to a place where ne neither of you feel like you're code switching, neither of you feel like you're lying, and quite frankly, you get it off your chest now, so we're not arguing about this when we know that we have to uh, launch this program at the end of the month, because that's never good at 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, does anybody else have any other thoughts on code switching and gaslighting and, or, or something they want to get off their chest? Because that's what we do here. No, everyone wants to keep it fabulous. Um, all right, I'll go on to another question. I'll be the ratio in the C-suite. All right, well, I'll start by saying I'm not in the C-suite, but on my way there, so I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> All right, why don't more people of color see media advertising as a career of choice? I hate this question. I also hate this question, so you go first. Um, I, I, the reason why I hate this question is because um, earlier on in my career, I started my career in media, um, in media sales, and when I transitioned into advertising on the creative side, uh, the, the transition was so difficult that when I got into an actual agency, I started asking all the white people how they got there, and I realized that a lot of them just stumbled on it, right? They, they also just was like, oh shit, a friend of mine was doing this, and I was like, oh, that sounds cool, so I'm gonna do it. Um, but when you really look at the landscape, uh, especially now with social media, you can see that there are a lot of black and brown people who actually do what we do. They just don't call it advertising. And so it's really lazy from my perspective when recruiters say that they can't find somebody or that uh, black and brown people aren't considering it because the transition is often very easier for white people who are making that transition because one of the one of the main things that I realized, especially working at bigger agencies, was that they found a way to make people who had um, transferable skill sets fit into the space. So for me, I hate that question because it basically just is, it says that we can't do it, or it's assuming that we're not um, built for it. It's, it's, it's an active decision. Right, that's an active decision. When I know that if you really went into your inbox and, see, and went to look and see who was actually applying for these jobs, you would find black and brown people. What you, what's happening is that you're not. Um, the the way that the resumes are probably set up don't necessarily transfer very easy into these spaces, and they rarely ever take the time to actually dig a little bit deeper to find out that this is somebody who has something that can actually fit into that organization. Yes, in addition to that, um, I, I agree with that 100%. I think there are two other ways to look at this, right? So sometimes we, uh, people of color um, and, and others, you have that friend that you just don't want them to make you look bad when they come into the workplace because, you know, sometimes, you know, she says those things and I know she's looking for a job, but I don't want it to reflect poorly on me. Um, I guarantee that there are plenty of people who work uh, with you that don't look at their friends in that way when they pass their resumes along. That's why you have so many people that you don't enjoy working with, because somebody <laughs> already recommended them for that position, knowing damn well they talk too much. Um, and that, you know what they thought? That's not really my business. My business is I'm gonna let you go into the process and I'm gonna leave it up to the recruitment and the hiring guys and, you know, may, you know, may whatever be ever in your favor. Um, I would also like to 
call everyone to action, to be a little bit more empathetic when you do have friends that are interested in the work that you do, and not to be their first judge and jury as to whether they are fit for this business. Quite frankly, there are super talented people in this business that don't even make it past a mid-level because it's toxic, it can be taxing, and it's really difficult. So from my perspective, it becomes our job to allow more people into the system to maybe even learn to be more collaborative, learn not to speak that much in a meeting, and also learn to actually make their way through the pipeline without me deciding based on what my experience is, I don't think you're good enough. It's a really shitty friend thing to do, and if you've done it, shame on you. I've done it, shame on me. Um, but to make an intentional point to pass on the resumes that you don't think can make it because that's also holding up the pipeline. There's also, to Simeon's point, um, this idea of not necessarily uh, looking at ways to be more creative with how we resource people and where we go to find people. Um, you know, I've been to the club enough in my lifetime to know there are people out here making party flyers for an entire career, and they could be an entire graphic designer, okay? And you know damn well when you are sitting there and you are looking for somebody just to move a couple pixels for you and your team tells you they don't have no bandwidth, that you wish you could call on that party flyer maker <laughs> to do that for you. So consider that when you are in recruitment, even if you're not in recruitment, to start looking beyond the resume. Start even looking maybe beyond the portfolio in the portfolio school and look at people who may be able to use skills that are transferable. For example, when I came into the business, I came in from, an, from entertainment. And I don't understand to this day how I got approved to get my first job as a project manager. I didn't know anything about schedule. I didn't know anything about um, scopes of work. You want me to write a scope of work? For whomst? It was very, um, it was very, very interesting for me that somebody thought I was qualified. But when I spoke to the woman that hired me, and to be honest, it was at Wonderman, and they created the position for me, so I did have a space uh, there. She said it was because she saw the potential based on the work that I've done. I've worked with artists from regular labels, so I must have patience. I lied. Um, she said that I put together concerts before, so I must know, I must be organized, and those are the basics needed for junior project management. Obviously, if I had gone to somebody else, they may not have seen those skills as important. It might have been she just knows how to stuff CDs into sleeves, because yes, we had CDs back then. It must be that you know she should go work at you know, Live Nation or something crazy like that. But it was that woman that said, there's a place for you in this business. So just kind of keep that top of mind as you guys are sourcing talent. They might come from a grocery store. They might come from finance. They might come from construction. As long as they can get the work done, that should be what matters. Everything else we can learn on the job. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a lazy ass question. I'm sorry. Um, 10 years ago, I think it's almost 10 years ago that they started where are all the black people. So for that question. With the one club, right? With the one club. So for that question to still exist today in 2020, um, shame on everybody, shame on me, shame on, on anybody who's a part of the pipeline because it's a real lazy ass question. Like, never ever ask that question. It's stupid. I'm sorry. Um, because, well, no, no, no. That's well, not fair. That's well, not no, fair. It's, 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 an, it's an honest question that deserves an honest answer. Yes. I think that that's what we're getting. So, the honest answer is this next, from my perspective, because especially in a place like New York City, if you're in the West Bubblefuck, the middle of the country, sure. 
But in a place, like, in, in a place like New York City, where people literally get off the bus every single day with these skill sets, hoping to break into this industry of all shades. So, and I know that they're in your inbox because they're in our inbox, yeah. right? So people are trying to figure out how to break into this industry. So to say, well, where are they? Uh, or why aren't more people considering it? It's, it's they, a lazy question. Well, the answer is they're not where you think they are. Yes. And that's why you're not finding them. Yes, there, yeah. there are other places. With your lazy ass answer. <laughs> All right. Um, this is actually a really good one here. How to stay motivated for growth when the C-suite looks nothing like you? I don't know. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, staying motivated for growth looks like creating a path for yourself, right? Um, I think. David Sable, who led YNR for a long time and is also um, one of our uh, uh, executives uh, over at WPP, he told me a story a couple years ago about how he was able to grow from an intern to CEO. It's a beautiful story. I think he wrote about it in Ad Week one day. You should read about it. But I realized at that moment that that wasn't my story. And that wasn't going to be the way that I would find success in this business. And while it is inspiring, um, it's not the thing that I should lead on. I think that, with, even with good intention, can be demotivating. Because it's like, damn, I can't do that. Nobody's just going to see how hard I work. You know how many days I've broken at the office trying to get stuff out the door? Um, I think there's a little bit of creativity that is required of us that seek to find success in advertising when the C-suite does not look like you, right? And that means that, and I'm gonna say this and everybody's gonna be mad at me, that means that it may not necessarily be your time to stay at that agency when you feel that that glass ceiling has hit you. After you've had your conversations with your supervisor, if you've had your conversations with HR, and you know, you've done your classes, and you've gone to management trainings, and you realize you're still not getting the promotion, and nobody's telling you what the path looks like, you, it is up to you to find other people in the industry, hopefully within this organization of Group M and WPP, that can help to lead you to whatever your next step looks like. You can go from project management to HR. You can go from planning to strategy. You can go from strategy to creative, but it really looks like what you make it. And I think when we look at other people's, it is, it is great to find people that you can model your path after, but when you find that that is not something that's available to you, it is okay to use your imagination to kind of build what a career looks like for you and to stand by that. You can get as much advice as you want from anybody, but the reality is nobody is going to go through the fire with you, so you do have to kind of figure that part out and follow your heart, your gut, your spirit, whatever it is that you follow to get through the day to follow those things to, to kind of make your way. The motivation comes within, not from without. So if you know you got bills to pay, like I do on March 1st coming up, that might be a motivation to keep, to keep uh, moving a couple more days. If you know that you're trying to make it to get whatever your, your cover of Ad Week being, I don't know, most influential thought leader or whatever, then you know that you have to put your energy into that and follow your path. If your motivation really is to make it to the C-suite, then determine what that looks like for you. Calling something out, social media didn't really exist as a discipline when I started in this business nine years ago. And now there are chief social media, chief um, technology officers, and all of these 
new events and, and work streams where people are leading. We don't know what 10 years from now a C-suite actually looks like. So imagine if they have to build new disciplines, like they did with my role in culture, um, if they have to build new disciplines for people to lead, then there still is a pathway for you, but you just kind of have to imagine what that is, work with people to define that, and continue to push forward, believing in yourself. And that sounds right, but it's true. No, I think that's, that's on point. Um, the key thing that stuck out for what you just said is for you, um, you really have to figure out why the fuck you want to do this. Sorry, excuse my language. Um, but that's the reality. It's like you have to know why you're in these spaces. And for a lot of the people who hit us up when they're going through things, that's usually where I start the conversation is why are you here? And what do you actually want to accomplish within this industry? Because in the beginning, the money ain't that great. Um, so why are you actually here? There needs to be something that's- Might not be that great right now. For a lot of people, it's not. Yeah. So you, you really have to figure out why you're here and not necessarily the title because nobody in the C-suite that I, or any of the companies that I worked at, um, have looked like me. But the thing that motivated me was I wanted to do dope shit. Um, and that was the, the reason why I would get up and leave jobs because I'm like, look, if I'm not doing what I want to do here, then I need to figure out someplace else to do it. And so I would say the core thing is, quite frankly, fuck the C-suite. Like, that's, it's, if that is the the um, your ministry, like you actually want to be somebody who is a, a leader of, of X amount of people because it's your unique skill set, then go for it. But ultimately, I think most of us are motivated by what it is that we actually want to accomplish as a individual, and so. For me, the C-suite is whatever I think you should really take, have your own come to Jesus moment, and really figure out what it is that's keeping you here and why you want to stay here. We had an executive coach on the show a few, actually a few weeks ago, um, and I think it's a, if you get a chance to go listen to it, I think it's, uh, it's imperative because where we netted out is a lot of this has to, where she came from, and I'll try to reiterate as best as possible, was that her job wasn't to tell you what to do with your career. She wanted to, she basically uses her skill sets to allow you to, um, I guess, speak from a place of truth. Speak the truth, right? and then essentially what happens is you start to say out loud what yes. it is that you want from your career. Right. And, and for me, that's the therapy for work. Yes. And for me, that was the thing that kept me going was I basically put together, I would say, my personal board of directors, Kai's part of it, she doesn't know it, um, who I would basically have those safe spaces where I can basically say all of those things and come to the realization of, I don't necessarily want to be, a C -suite, be in the C-suite. I want to do dope shit. I want my voice to matter in rooms. I want to have influence. I want to have equity at the table. And that's been the thing that's, keep, that's kept me motivated. So I would say if you're, if you're gunning for the title, you should really ask yourself why, right? Like, if, and it's money, cool. Like, that's a real last thing to say. Like, you want a big house, you want a big car. But you should really, really understand why it is that you're gunning for whatever it is that you, that you are so that you're doing it from a place of integrity. So all of those questions that were, were posed at the beginning, I think it gets easier to navigate those situations when you understand exactly why you want to be, why you want to be in that space to begin with. Please. Sure. I was gonna say, if your desire is to be in the C-suite, however, uh, let your growth, <laughs> let your growth um, motivation be the fact that you don't see anyone in there that looks like you. Because um, it's not gonna change. 
if you decide that because you know to yourself you're not going to, to aim for that, it's going to remain what it is, number one. Number two, it doesn't matter where you go. You may go and never see anyone that looks like yourself. So then you're opting out of opportunities that could be yours for the taking. And I'll tell you that because where, when I got to where I am, head of diversity, equity, and inclusion for Group M US, <clears throat> which are all the opcos in the US market, I was challenged with all truth, because we have a safe space. I was challenged with how to be that person of color in that position because I hadn't seen it. And then a coach told me, wonderful white woman that I met, said to me, um, be the person. You don't have to look for the person to be like. You create what that looks like. And the reason why if some of you choose to be in C-suite, my choice was so that I could affect change, so that you could see someone, and that I could also make it an opening path for other people to be able to get there if I can help. Because we know that in this industry, it has been historically based on referrals. It has been historically based on the homogenous networks that are had. So if we can have more diversity in senior leadership, we can have more opportunities to grow our networks to be more diverse. So I'm just adding on to what you said. Wait, can I ask you a question? Did you, was the C-Speech your motivation or were you doing something that you really loved that people noticed that you were doing it? I did something that I really love, which is helping people of underrepresented communities or in any sort of unfair place get to where they need to be. And so I myself was probably my first guinea pig. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We're gonna move on to allyship. Uh, this is my favorite one because I ended up having to write an entire piece at 2 o'clock in the morning a couple weeks ago about this. Um, so <laughs> we can go. Knowing that allyship is a lifelong commitment, what are the ways, big or small, we can better demonstrate allyship to people of color in the workplace? Um, I don't even know how to start. Um, I do. <laughs> We, we had a moment a couple we weeks ago. We had a whole moment a couple weeks ago, and I feel com I feel comfortable sharing. Um, the moment came on our social media. I'll be as generic as possible, but also as truthful as well. The moment came on our social media. We posted uh, a picture of um, uh, Karen Blackett, who's actually one of the most senior women within the WPP family over in the UK. She was on the cover of Campaign Magazine. And she, we wanted to kind of give her and the other people in the magazine a shout out, which we did. We said shout out to these folks, because they're great. And a very, um, a person of prominence and leader came to the comment section, because you know, it's the comments, um, and kind of said, this is great, but that's not really diversity and inclusion. And this is a person who, um, assumes the role of, of a strong advocate for people of color and of marginalized communities. And so here, and I give that example because I want people to understand that just because you say you are an advocate and you are an ally does not make you an ally. In fact, you don't get to call yourself an ally. I don't get to call myself an ally to anybody. You have to decide as yourself and I have to decide for myself who my allies are, right? So essentially, the learnings from that bring us here. Here, how do you show someone you are an ally? You have to advocate 
for them to their face and behind their back. For example, going back to the sharing resumes of your friends that you're not quite sure is they're gonna be the great culture fit. Are you an ally to that person in that situation who's looking for a role? who feels that they actually do have a shot, and you're the one behind the scenes saying, mm, sure, but not here. Sometimes people do that. You feel that you're doing it because it's for the benefit of that person, and that's not always the case. Um, you have to speak up for people to their face and behind their back. You also, shout out to Rihanna for being in the Image Awards the other day, have to be that friend that kind of pulls up, right? So you can't actually say that I am for women's rights and I am for family leave, but you're not there on the front lines advocating for people when they need to take off of work to go tend to a sick child or when they actually have to go to um, their hiring manager or HR, whomever, to discuss, you know, I believe that I may not necessarily be making uh, parable wages and I'd like to discuss that. It is, as an ally, it, be, it is your duty to go with them and help them to add numbers uh, and, and bodies to, their, to that conversation so that there's more weight to their requests. The reality is there's a lot of people that just like to make social media posts because it's cute and everybody likes filters. There's the reality is that there's a lot of people that like to retweet stuff that happened in 2006. Um, there's reality is that there's a lot of people that aren't really paying attention and they just like to be a part of a conversation and that's not allyship. As an ally, it is your role to use your privilege, whatever pr privilege you have, to whomever you have. And that's not just for white people. Sometimes when we say privileged people, automatically assume white, and that's not the case at all. Whatever your privilege is, if you are more senior, if you are older, if you have more clout, more influence, whatever that is in a space, it is your job to help to elevate those conversations on behalf of that person. Not to steal their voice, not to speak on their behalf, but to give them the platform and the space to say what they need to say to make their point. Um, and I think that that can happen in little, in, in small and large ways. That can be as small as don't talk bad about this person around me, or as big as I think this person needs a raise. It can be as small as I'm gonna show up to an event that uh, people from the collective are putting on because I'm an ally for, I, I want to stand in alliance for the values that they push. And it can be as little as I can't make it, but let me make sure that two people, two other people can go today. I think those are really tangible ways to make sure that you are um, really practicing the values of being an ally. Yeah, I mean, that's on point. And I love that Rihanna did that. I love that it's so close to this to this moment. Um, for me, I think it comes from a place of not wanting to be an accomplice to the bullshit. Um, and that is, for me, the, just the base of being an ally, because a lot of things that we do, regardless of who you are, we all have privilege, can come from a place of good intention, and you can be adding on to the problem. Um, and to do it, and I think I like the fact that the person said lifelong, is that this is, this is some life shit, right? So you actually have to go home, and you need to be, able to be the one who's educating yourself, not just waiting for the DNI person to do it. Being the person who's reading, being the person who's listening, because if you really, really, really want to be real, um, in addition to us, because we are a platform, there are hundreds of books that have been written about allyship from every single perspective, whether it's from um, racial, whether it's from sexuality, whether it's from gender, it's all there. It's all there for you to, to do, and a lot of it is free, shout out to Google. Um, and if you really, truthfully want to be an ally, it's not that hard. I think the, the biggest thing- I think it is hard. 
Well, just I'm, being an ally, being an ally can get you caught up in some shit you didn't want to get caught yes. up in. And then that, and that means that that is taking. That means that if you get yourself into a situation where you become a part of a bigger situation, it's kind of also standing in that and owning right. it. I think it's it's not that hard. And what I mean is, at the same time, you have to be willing to be in uncomfortable situations, right? The, the easy part is educating yourself. The hard part is actually stepping into those uncomfortable spaces. For me, I'm, I'm black, and yes, I, I deal with things that are very specific to the black experience that I would rather not have to deal with, but I'm still a dude, right? So from the perspective of gender, I can either be somebody who's helping to marginalize women, or I can be somebody who's helping to push them along further. And I don't necessarily think it needs to be these big gestures. It can literally be shutting the hell up, right? So if you're sitting at the table and a woman is talking, not interrupting her. And we talked about this earlier on in the podcast where um, when everybody was talking about mansplaining, I realized that, oh shit, I do that, right? Like, And I would justify it by saying, well, I'm really excited, I need to get this off my chest before I forget it. But at the same time, it was like, but you're still interrupting, right? And so I had to be willing to basically take a hard look at myself and go, oh, you ain't shit. And, and sit in it, right? And we talk about this all the time. Like you have to be, you have to be uncomfortable. You have to be willing to be uncomfortable. That's just that's growth, right? And so I say the base of it is, and and the reason why I bring up that that um, example is because if you would have asked me before we started this podcast, are you a feminist? Do you stand up for women's rights? I would have probably said hands down. What are you? Are you crazy? Like I love strong women. But at the same time, I was part of the bullshit. I had to be willing to step into that. And I think everybody, if you're truthfully wanting to be an ally, if it's really easy, you're probably doing something wrong. Because you're not addressing the things that you do that, um, that, that basically point to your privilege. And so if, the real, if you're really truthfully, honestly trying to be an ally, make sure that you're not part of the bullshit. Right. I think it goes back to integrity and, and standing in what you say and kind of meaning it. So if you say that you are for women, then that is actively doing that on the ground. If you say you are for people of color, actively doing that and owning in the consequences that come along with that sometimes. And that is what's hard because it, I won't lie, sometimes it can cause you a reputation with people that you are comfortable around. I mean, for those of y'all that go to Thanksgiving dinner every year, I know what that's like, you know, finding out that your uncle supports somebody that you don't. I mean, you don't get any turkey, sir, sit over there. Um, I want to take this time to kind of open it up to questions, or allow the opportunity to open up to questions that people don't mind being recorded. We will shut off the mic at some point in case y'all have something private or you can hit us up. Um, but we want to be fair, want to be give value. Anybody got questions, comments, something you want to say? Hello, um, my name is Tara. Um, my question is about microaggressions and um, when you experience it in the workplace, how do you know when it's ignorance? And how do you know when it's like blatant, like, how do you know when they did it on purpose, or how do you know when they're, they didn't mean it? Um, I, my approach is to always give you one time to learn. I'm going to explain this to you one time. I'm going to uh, charge this to ignorance, not knowing um, a, a lack of context, a lack of nuance, and sit down and have the conversation, especially if I really like working with you. Um, if you touch my hair again, it becomes a bigger issue. I think that's the biggest thing. And it's about setting boundaries. 
with microaggressions, but also there is an educational piece. And a lot of times what happens with people when we talk on the show is like, I'm tired of telling people, I'm tired of educating people. Yes, we are tired. However, every for every action, there's a reaction. So if you pop off every time somebody says something crazy about you, or touches your hair, or says something about your skin, or summertime comes and all of a sudden we're all the same color, and it's like, no, we're not, um, then it, it makes the workplace less comfortable to work in. If you give the people that are important to you and important to the work you're working on an opportunity to redeem themselves and be better, it gives an opportunity for us to have a better work environment, but also set your boundaries up that this is me setting my line, and this is where you may not cross ever again. In a nice tone, of course. Code switch. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's definitely on point. I think the biggest thing is to, like we know it's gonna happen. Like, we, it's just the, the side effects of being in uh, a mixed environment. Um, so you want to have strategies ready because the reality is with your lizard brain, you're either going to go into uh, fear and flight or, or fight and flight mode, right? So if you know that's going to be the case, and it's for a lot of us, where it's like either you kind of go into your shell or you want to pop off to have those strategies ready, to be ready to pose questions or, or figure out strategic ways to address it because it's going to, unfortunately, it's going to keep happening. I think every time you, and I talked to somebody um, two days ago who was getting ready to quit their job because of that, I said, well, you're go it's going to start all over again, right? It's a cycle, right? So you're going to have to basically sort of initiate new people into your otherness. And so you need to get comfortable in having those conversations and addressing these microaggressions because regardless of whether you're at work or you're in the streets, somebody's going to say something at some point in time and you want to make sure that you're ready to handle the situation in a way that doesn't um, pour fuel on the fire. Perfect. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and wrap up because we are heading to the top of the hour, everyone, at Aspects Company. So if you are interested in anything that we said, you are welcome to, one, find me in the hallways because I work here. Um, two, <laughs> you can find us on social media at Ask Mixed Company. That's on Instagram, Twitter, and I believe Facebook. Um, you can also listen to us, like we said, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. They got, if they got podcasts, you can find us. Um, and with that, again, thank you so much to the team here at Group M and also yes, the collective for showing us love and allowing us to um, take the rest of your day from you. Um, and we had a good time, and peace out. Thanks. Yeah.